Good morning. I only, I only get up here so often for this. Can I get a better one than that? Because it's like a power play. Good morning. Uh, that's good enough. That's fine. Um, my name is Mike, and, uh, and I'm on staff here at Harbor City, and I'm super excited to preach here uh, for the first time. Um, I, I was a youth pastor up in Encinitas for about the last six years, so if I start making fart jokes, just bear with me. Just like a go-to, not on purpose, not in the script, but it could happen. Can neither confirm or deny. Um, just again, super excited to be able to come with you, come before you, and uh, and and open the text. Uh, and when I was assigned this text in, at the end of Matthew eight, my first reaction was, "Oh no!" Um, and not because I'm like, "Oh, I'm going to be so like godly and convicted." Like, "Oh no, this is the most cliched, overused passage." Like. As we read through it this morning, you're going to be like, oh, I've heard, not this again. Who's this guy? And, uh, and that was my response, to be honest. Like, I was reading through it, and it, it took me a while as I'm asking the Spirit to speak to me, to, to show me, like, why does this matter? What does it mean? Make it, make it fresh. Make it new. And I'm just thankful that he did. And so I'm going to pray for me in a second and pray for us that you do the same thing. So that if you f- start to hear this, that our automatic Response is not just, a, oh, I've already heard this sermon before. Uh, maybe you have, but I think through the Holy Spirit, he wants to work in our hearts for each of us um, to do something, to renew us, and to give us for hopefully a new perspective or a new love for the gospel. So you join me in prayer as uh, just asking God to do work again. Uh, Lord, I need you so much. I thank you uh, for just how good you are, I thank you that you get it. You understand this world better than I ever could. You understand me and my heart better than I ever could. That this word is a revelation of you, of what you've done, of who you are. So, Lord, um, speak to us through your word. Do your work. I invite the Holy Spirit to come and just do cool stuff in our hearts. And just show us again how great you are. Honor yourself, and I pray in your name. Amen. We are in Mark chapter 8. The scripture is in your bulletin if you want. You, you want to pull out your phone or if you have an old Bible, you know, and you want to pull that out, that's fine too. But we're going to jump into Mark 8 and just read, picking up in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. The word of the Lord. 
The book of Mark is split into three sections, and so this is the end of that first section. Mark 1 through 8, uh, we see Jesus up in the north, uh, up near Gal- up Galilee and other countries, doing this teaching, and Mark is, is, is telling us about this king. And we've done two sermon series talking about this, the good news for a change, and then the, the, we're finishing this morning, the revolutionary king. This idea that Jesus came, and Mark introduces us to him, and, and, and tells us all about the nature of who he is, how he dealt with people, what kind of things he had to say. And we're transitioning now into this next sermon series, which, Stephen, great job plugging the sermon series. It's a good idea to have the pastor talk about the next sermon series, because he's all fired up, as opposed to me, and I'm like, I don't know, something's coming up, could be good, we'll see. So he did a really good job. Good job, Stephen. That was awesome. The next, the next section we're jumping into, starting next week, is, is the beginning of the road to Jerusalem, this 100-mile journey where Jesus pours into his disciples to prepare them for the last part of Mark, the arrest, the trial, the crucifixion, the resurrection of Jesus. So we are at this this crossroads in this section, and Jesus, the king, starts to tell us all about his mission, why he actually came. We didn't really get that in the first eight chapters. We just got, he seems like a really good guy. He does some cool tricks, super smart, knows what he's doing. And then Jesus says, surprise, in this section, I'm actually doing something that you didn't want me to do. I'm here with another purpose. So Peter correctly identifies Jesus as the Christ in that first paragraph there. And that's what John talked about last week. He says, you're the Christ, and that's a really big deal. But then Jesus does this thing that's weird, right? He says, Absolutely, I am the Messiah. You finally get it. It's taken you eight chapters, Peter, but you figured it out. I am the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. There's a lot of this in Mark, this secrecy. Some people call it the, um, the secret motif or the messianic secret. I call it the secret stuff. In Mark 1, after Jesus heals this demon, actually as he's getting rid of this demon, healing a person from this demon, he says to the demon, the demon's like, you're the son of God. And Jesus is like, shut up and leave. He just basically tells the demon to stop telling people who I am. And he heals people. He tells them, don't tell people who I am. And it happens again and again. And then in Mark 4, Jesus starts teaching in parables, which we're familiar with, right? It's like these lessons with bigger meanings. But he flat out says in Mark 4, the reason I'm doing this is so that you won't get it. Do you ever ever do something like that? Like at work, you go to like a conference and they're talking just way over your head. And you're like, yeah. Or at church maybe in the sermon this morning. You're like, that was really good, bro. That was awesome. Mm, That was deep. I think that's what they were like with with the parables. They're like, "Mm, I get it. And Jesus is like, no, you don't. You don't get it. And that's on purpose because it's a secret. Do you ever just wonder why? Like, what's going on in Mark? Why would Mark do that? There's a lot of opinions and ideas and and some weird ideas as to the reason there is this secret motif. And there's a particular um, esteemed theologian here in Southern California that I lean towards, Stephen Cooper. Um, That is funny. There is, and here's what Stephen had to say about this, and I thought it was the best way to understand it. That the moment everyone finally understood who Jesus was, They're going to kill him. Jesus doesn't want them to kill him yet because he's not done. Jesus is not done preparing the disciples, following greatness, Mark 9 and 10. See you next week. You should come. It's going to be awesome. And he's also wanting to go to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is this, this locus of activity in 
the history of Israel. The prophets cried out against Jerusalem. Coming up, Jesus is going to have all these insane, gnarly teachings against Jerusalem. Jesus is going to the city of David on purpose. And he says, don't tell people who I am because they'll kill me. And we know that because they do. They figure out that he is the Messiah. And if you've read the rest of the book, spoiler alert, they kill him. Right? So Jesus says, yes, you're right. I am the Messiah, but don't tell anyone. And then he begins to teach them that the son of man, he says, must suffer many things and be rejected and be killed and three days rise again. Jesus says, jackpot, you're right. I am the Messiah, but wait, there's more. I'm not only the Christ. I'm going to suffer and die. And Mark says in verse 32, he said this plainly. And it's really important. Jesus doesn't hide it via parable. He doesn't say, oh yeah, and don't also share this part. He's talking to the disciples, informing them what type of Messiah he is. And their response, Peter's response is actually, it's priceless, right? Classic Peter. Duh, Peter. Walk in the water. I'm doing great. I look down. I fall in. I have to get saved. Duh, Peter. You say I'm the Messiah. Then you rebuke Satan. Duh, Peter. You're chopping off people's ears later. What's going on, Peter? Who, who do you think you are? Peter's response when he takes Jesus and starts to rebuke him, it's, it's the right response. Theologically, he's doing the right thing. If Stephen stood up here next week, don't do this, and started to just tell us, like, we're all going to die. It's going to be awesome. Let's go. And Chad stood up, or one of the elders probably stood up, and Bill McCurran comes up and just, like, tackles him and drives him into the ground. He's like, what are you doing? That's not the right thing to do. We would all be like, we're with Team Bill right now. Like, that was the correct response. Why are we all going to go die? Why are you leading us to, to death? You're a pastor. You're not supposed to do that. Even more so in this illustration, Stephen's God. The Messiah is not supposed to do that. This Messiah is not supposed to die. For hundreds of years, the Jews have been occupied. They've been possessed by other nations. They've been displaced. Horrible things have happened to them, and they had one sliver of hope. Over and over throughout the Old Testament, all the prophets said, one day Messiah will come and save us and renew us and ransom us. He's coming. Just wait. We'll return to prominence. We'll, get, we'll be in charge again. We will rule. We are the people of God, and God has promised to save us. And they just found out who the Savior was. Jesus is here, but he gets the story wrong, right? He says, I'm going I'm to die now. I'm going to lose. You can't lose, Jesus. You can't lose, is what Peter grabs him. Literally takes him and goes, that's not okay. That's not the plan. I know my Bible. I know what's supposed to happen. Everyone is waiting for you, and you're here. Why are you saying these dirty little words? What's wrong with you, Jesus? So just a quick note, Peter does the right thing with his limited information of the entire Old Testament. But then Jesus rebukes Peter. Jesus says, the Son of Man must die. And when Jesus says that, he's invoking Daniel 7. He's invoking language from Zechariah. The Son of Man is going to come dwell with the people. The Son of Man is going to redeem them and save them. And the Son of Man must suffer, right? For the Jews, here's a really key point that I found out this, these last couple of weeks, and it was amazing to me. 
for the Jews, the suffering servant of Isaiah 44, 53, 54, that we all talk about around Christmas, the suffering servant had never been placed with the Messiah. Get that. The Messiah came in victory. The suffering servant waited for God to help them and do these other things. He's this mysterious character. And Jesus says, the suffering and the servant are me. The Jews kind of took pride that maybe we're actually the suffering servant, waiting, we're suffering, we're loving God, we're waiting for rescue. And Jesus says, I'm the suffering servant, the Messiah, and I must die. The Jews thought the mission of the Messiah was to emancipate them, to better their life. They thought the mission of the Messiah was for their sake. They thought the mission of the Messiah was all about them. So Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him in the middle of his teaching. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God. The word that Jesus uses when he rebukes, the word that Mark uses when Jesus rebukes Peter is the same thing as if Jesus was rebuking a demon in chapter 1. It's harsh language. And he calls him Satan, accuser. And who is Satan? He's the prince of lies, half-truths, right? Peter didn't get it. He's deceived. He's not thinking about the right things. And then Jesus says, get behind me, follow me. And then he begins to expand on that. The Son of Man must die, and he's inviting his followers to go with him. Why? Why, why, why? It should be our question. Why must the Son of Man die? It's because the price of life is death. Jesus' mission was to save the whole world, to ransom the entire people of God, He did not come so we could have a well-balanced life. He didn't come to be a nice blessing to Israel and to return them to prominence. He didn't come so we could have this man-focused, self-governing, dutiful, it makes me feel better when I go to church. I feel like if I I read the book of Proverbs, then I know I'm going to have a better day. It's not short-sighted. It's not simple. It's not moralistic. Matthew, uh, sorry, Hebrews 9.22 says, Without blood there is no remission of sin. It takes blood to heal sin. Why? I'm going to go into youth pastor mode without the crass joking. God hates sin. God hates it. And I, I think, well, I don't. I don't hate sin. I want to. Sometimes I do. When it affects me, I'm like, ah, that's sin. I don't like it again. But I kind of dally and play. But God hates it. Yes, he's holy. He's separate. He's completely different. It's offensive to his, his nature and his character. He's completely separate. Yes, but there's more to the story. He hates sin because he knows that all sin leads to death. And again, yes, death because we're separated from God. We know that story. We've heard it. But God knows sin better than we do. He knows that lies kill trust. Right? You guys remember growing up, or if you have kids now, when they lie or you lie to your parents, trust is easy to break and hard to build, right? Because lies kills that intimacy in families, in jobs. You know, what, you feel so betrayed when you're lied to, and it kills your relationship with that person. God 
gets that. Lust kills love and beauty and our ability to appreciate what beauty is and innocence. And it leads to horrible things. God hates sin because he sees what it does to every single one of us. That sin, all it does is kill, kill, kill. All sin leads to death and all sin always leads to death. Yes, spiritually, but functionally, he loves us and his creation so much that when we just jack ourselves and hurt ourselves and do horrible things to each other, he hates it. And there must be judgment because it is the worst thing imaginable. Do you you kind of get that a little bit? He's not just going, man, they're having fun without me and I'm sure upset about it. It's this burning rage that we hurt ourselves so much. Um, I have a daughter who I love. is up in the nursery. She's eight months old. She's the best thing in the world. She messed up my name tag. Um, and if I see her like heading towards certain hurt, if she's on this stage, I can barely make it up those sketchy stairs. If she's up here and trying to like navigate getting on or off of the stage, I'm not going to let her like play around by the edge, right? Even at home, we have a, just a mattress on, on the floor. We were hanging out this morning, and she's kind of, it's like that high, and she's crawling. I'm not going to let her play. If, there's, if we're at a campfire, and there's a blazing fire, and she sees it, and in her sweet but dumb little eight-month-old brain, she's like, fire! And she starts just racing towards it. What am I going to do? <laughs> yeah, fire's fun. Go for it, Winnie. It's a blast. No, like, of course not, right? And not to get epic, I'm going to sacrifice my life for her and all this stuff, but I'm going to, like, do whatever I can to save this little girl because she's my daughter. And that is not even compared to what God sees when he sees our self-induced hurt and sin. We're not victims who fall off little cliffs or accidentally touch fire because we're dumb. We see sin, we're lured by it, it's crouching at our door, and we run after it headlong. That's not just us, it's the entire world since Adam and Eve, right? God hates it. And the only way for him to save anyone or or everyone is for Christ to live a perfect life, to die a death that he did not deserve, and for the wrath of God to be poured out onto the Messiah, the Savior, for Jesus to rise again in three days, which is what he talks about. Because the cost of life, for us to live It's not him slapping our hands. Don't do that. It's not safe. He has to die. That's plan plan A. So our first point this morning. I knew we'd get there. The price of life is death for the Messiah. For us to live, he had to die. And here in Mark 8... In in verse 31, we finally understand the meaning of why Jesus came. It took all that time to get there. And 20 minutes into my sermon, what is this text about? That the price and the, sorry, the cost of life is, is death. That's what it costs. He came to purchase life. This is the meaning of this sermon. This is the meaning of this text. This is the meaning of the book of Mark. This is the meaning of the entire Bible. He came to purchase abundant life. And that cost is his life. Jesus is rebuked by Peter. He then, of course, rebukes Peter back. 
and says, no, I'm rebuking you, now follow me. And then he calls the crowd to him with his disciples, and he says this, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Quickly on to the second point, so fast. The cost of life is death for the Messiah, and the cost of life, of true life in Christ, is death for his followers. Jesus plainly invites the people around him, follow me to death. He gathers them around. He goes, I'm taking this 100-mile journey, this journey. It's going to take you know, a few weeks, whatever. We're going to get there. We're going to talk about a lot of stuff, following greatness, next sermon series, second plug in this sermon. But it's not going to end well for you. But I want you to pick up this cross, the cross beam, the instrument of death. I want you to carry it yourself to the place of your execution. Speaking of the tower that kind of seems like that too, right? Like, come on with me. Yes, this is my third year doing the Towerthon, where we climb a 20-story building as many times as possible in two hours. And just a little point of fact, two years ago I was able to do 100, I think it was 164, 168 flights or stories of stairs, and it's awful. It's ridiculous. It's not fun at all, but it's also kind of interesting. You get like a little chip on your, on your laces, and it's like officially timed. I don't know if you know this, but there's actually, if you've done this before and you're, you're good at it, there's a sprint class that people actually for two hours see how many times they can sprint up a 20-story building. It's so stupid. Who would do this? Uh, 20-story building as many times as they can and then be like, I did it in, I don't know, 12 minutes or four seconds or whatever it is. Like, I did it 100 times. It's incredible. I think that actually the goal, there's a goal of, of being able to go up as high as a mile or something. I don't remember how many times you have to go. But yes, I'm inviting you to come with me to pick up your cross and die with me in two weeks at the Towerthon. It's going to be awesome. If I turn to you and say, will you follow me to death by stairwell? Will you do that? <laughs> it's awesome. So, no, really, Stephen did a good job. Like, you, you can just, like, it's, give money. If, don't even come. Just give money. That's fine. We're going to help out a great cause. And just go once. Someone has to hold my baby in case he's going to be at work, so I need someone to come to. So just pay money and then hold Winnie. It's perfect. Jesus isn't sadistic. He's not just saying, come to death for a really good cause. It's going to mean a lot. Death and resurrection of Jesus creates the opportunity for the entire world to be saved. But that opportunity is realized when his followers are willing to do the same. He says later, whoever will lose his life for my sake and for the gospel's. The good news. Don't just die. Don't just take up this cross because I really want you to, but take it up because it's going to change the world. If his followers are willing to go to death, to die to themselves, to find life in Christ, it will change their families. It will change their workplace. It will change their city if they are willing to die. And this isn't just some hyperbole, right? Think about Mark's written about 30 years-ish after Jesus, probably before the temple is, is destroyed by Nero. So the people Jesus is writing to are facing the wrath, the, the hell of Nero. Lighting Christians on fire like candles, like keeping them, lighting up the city with them. Killing Christian after Christian after Christian. And I think Mark makes this so clear for us because he makes it so clear for these Christians that the call to follow Jesus is not, oh, Jesus, you're good, thanks. I'm going to go do my own thing. 
It's not simple. It's not easy. It's not good advice. It's not to make you feel good. That the call to follow Jesus is a call to come and die in order to find new life. Just to illustrate that really quickly, and I, I don't think there's a lot of young kids. It's a little, little intense, not too hairy. I just want to rehearse the, what history tells us so we think this is true of the, of the disciples, of how they actually died. Judas Iscariot, right? Judas betrays Jesus, hangs himself, suicide. Doesn't really count, but he also died. Bartholomew was skinned alive and then beheaded. James, uh, there's two James. So James the Lesser was stoned and clubbed to death. Andrew was crucified upside down on an X-shaped cross. Peter also crucified upside down. Matthew was nailed to a bed and they lit it on fire. Uh, Jude and Simon the Zealot were both, both of them were either crucified or sawed or axed to death. Either way, it's kind of gnarly. Philip was crucified. Last three. Thomas was impaled by a spear. Remember doubting Thomas? We're all like, oh, that guy's a doubter. Right? He actually took the gospel to China. He, he, he like went to China and then India and preached the gospel, and tons of people were saved. And in India, he had such an impact, the entire village trusted in Jesus, died on behalf. Right? And, and so then he was killed by the local king because he was such a good witness. He was so good at living for the gospel. He gave his life for it. James, the brother of John, was beheaded. There was a false accuser who was a Jew, and he brought these charges against, these made-up charges against James, and they were so effective, they decided to behead him. During the trial, his accuser became a Christian, gave his life to Christ, and asked to be beheaded next to James. And then John, the one we're like, oh, he got off easy. He lived an old life because he was put into a boiling cauldron of oil. Like he's a deep-fried John, like at the San Diego Fair. It was ridiculous, right? They put him in a boiling cauldron. He, he lived, miraculously. And so they're like, well, we can't boil you to death, so we're going to put you on an island. Just go die in old age. And then he wrote the revelation of Christ. Like, this is a real thing, right? For them. And then 30, just 30 years later, as they're all dying, and people are starting to look around and go, wait, was this the point? And Mark, who will also give us life for the gospel, is like, yes. Actually, because the gospel goes forth as we are willing to lay down our lives. The cost of true life for the followers is death. But maybe you're still asking, and it's a fair question, well, but must I die? Does that mean I actually have to like get killed or persecution? Because for most of us, when we think about bearing our cross or dying, we're like, there's like a guy at work who got mad because I wouldn't lie, and I was really persecuted because I didn't get a promotion, which is, you know, it's... That was intense, partially true, sure. But we're not all having to face, like, the, you know, chopped and boiled and such. What about us? Must I die? Is that, what they, is that what he means? Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Back to our second point. May I offer a new second point? But the, the cost of life is death for the Messiah. And then for the followers, you don't have to do it now. If you're willing to, just X out his followers and write for me. The cost of life is death for me. Jesus was talking to the crowds around him and his disciples trying to teach them. Mark is using this to help them understand this persecution they're facing. And for us, I believe, this next audience level that we are, Jesus is telling us this because we need this message 
today. I needed this mess. I still I needed it all week. I need it now. I need it tomorrow. And here's why. So we are saved by the life and death of Jesus, the Messiah, right? Like that's the gospel. Come to know him. I'm saved. It's awesome and it's beautiful and it's incredible. But this new life, this new soul, this new identity, it's different. Being saved is incredible and beautiful and God does this work in us and renews us and justifies us and we are saved. And yet sometimes... Even after, perhaps, if you have already accepted the gospel, the way you think about life or success or greatness, you still actually don't believe, Mark, about this passage. Maybe you haven't thought about it. I think we, most of us, or let's, let's just say me, I don't often believe Jesus, that I need to die in order to find life. At least partially, Right? That for me to sacrifice my agenda and my plan, I think I can actually have a pretty good life and still hold on to that stuff my way. I think we're like Peter. Like we read, we read the book, or at least part of it, we listen to the message, and we say, yes, I want you to be my Messiah, Jesus, but I, do I, have to, I don't really want to die for you. Or maybe we say, I'd, I'd probably die for you if it came to it, but I'm not willing to give you my, I don't know, finances my relationships, the way I talk, my attitude, the way I drive, the work, what my, how my dad hurt me. I'm going to hold on. I, Jesus, you don't understand what it would mean for me to let go of, of that. We hold on to stuff, right? C.S. Lewis offers a, a, um, a really amazing quote from Mere Christianity. I want to read it. It'll be up on the screen. He says, give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep nothing back. Nothing you have not given away will be really yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. He says, look for yourself, so look out for your own interests, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him everything else thrown in. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. When Jesus said, whoever loses his life for my sake, Tim Keller explained, that's the word that we have for psyche, for psychology, it's It's talking about our identity, our soul. And so the challenge I see from Keller, from Lewis, from Mark chapter 8, is for us to give up our soul and our identity, give give everything up to find life. But there may be a literal time when a few of us face persecution, maybe all of us, who knows, But that for us to find that life, that new identity, it takes surrendering, laying down our lives and taking up the cross of Christ in order to find hope. My mom says I prayed to receive Jesus when I was like four. I don't have a good memory. I believe her. I don't know. 
I trust her. I think I'm a Christian. Um, but in, in junior high, I just started like living this double life thing where I would go to public school and then come back to church and then live one way and then live another way. And I started getting really good at like a dualistic living for years, right? I'm one way with my friends and I'm another way with my family. I remember once I think I said the D word in front of my mom while playing Nintendo because I think Super Mario died or something. And I was like, and, uh, and I got in big trouble, right? Because you don't, I'm like, oh, I don't talk about it. I don't know where that came from. I'm so sorry. And I never did it again. I, from then on, I lived, I was really good at living a separated, divided, dual life. And forget what those actions were or what, why my one life was here, my other life was there. For me, there was so much of me in junior high and in high school that I just did not and was not at all willing to surrender, to allow to die, to find renewal, to find hope in Christ. And then uh, I was challenged to, to do that, to actually surrender my full life, because I was getting frustrated after seven years of just holding on to things so tightly. I was challenged to finally surrender things. And I remember for the first time, I just asked Christ to just... Just take it. And for me, it was this idea of like Savior and Lord. I asked you to save me, but I've never really given you my life. And whatever the words are, for me, this idea of surrendering everything to Christ, of really just taking those nooks and crannies, or maybe a majority of my heart, of my agenda, of my plan, of who I thought I was supposed to be, of how my marriage is supposed to be, of what's going on, how my family was, and how they hurt me, or whatever it is, right? of taking that stuff and just saying, Jesus, I just, just kill it. Just get rid of my thoughts. Jesus, do that in me. As a 17-year-old, it was, Jesus, I'm, I, I can't not like, cuss. Like, stop that for me, please. I think that's what he's talking about. That's what Keller and C.S. Lewis point us to. Not that we not cuss. That's not Jesus' agenda. That we find a brand new life. And we can so, therefore, offer that life to others as we surrender every bit of ourselves to him. We willingly pick up a cross, willingly choose death in order to find resurrection life in him. The cost of life is death for me, for us today, if we want to find that new life in him. Does that resonate? We're going to have communion in a second. And if this is the time for you to release something, literally in this moment, to Jesus. And when you come and take the bread and take the juice, and Stephen will set that up, don't worry. I'm not allowed to. He's, he knows the words. So if, if he'll, when he comes up and does that, for you to taste the body and the blood of Jesus and so picture and, and feel the death and the new life, do it, do it now. If you need to write it down, if there's something in you, something going on in this area that you know, write it down. Get it outside of you so you can see it. This week, talk to a friend or family your life group leader. Because this is what makes us 
This is what makes the gospel so ineffective in our lives, is when we are unwilling to yield things to Jesus and allow them to be crucified in order to find new life. That's how we renew the city. That's how our homes are renewed, when we let go and let that life of Jesus renew our hearts. Let me pray. Jesus, uh, I need you more now than 30 minutes ago. And I need to believe these words. Jesus, I confess that I, there's stuff I don't want to let go of. But I know I should and I know it's good. So again, help me, Father, to be willing to kill that stuff, to be willing to at least give it to you that you would put to death my sin, that you would renew my heart again and again and again. Not that I would be saved over and over and over, Lord, but that I would continue to find a new soul, a new identity, and so be allowed to set my, things on, on, set my mind on the things of you and not just live by my own agenda by my own logic, by my own way. God, do a miracle in our hearts. Transform us, renew us, give us life, Lord. We need it. For those who don't believe it yet, Father, not because I said it, but because it's your word, work in their hearts to show them that there is a better way and that it's death that leads to life. We need you, Lord, and we love you. We pray in your name. Amen.